Hi, I'm Jack Farley, host of the Forward Guidance podcast on BlockWorks. I recently was in London for the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit, and I was speaking to institutional investors in crypto. Who did I run into other than Michael Nicoletos, who's an investor in the macro space, uh, particularly known for his work on currencies? Uh, but I didn't know he was into crypto. So I said, Michael, how's it going? Great to see you. What are you doing at the at this crypto conference? And he had caught the crypto bugs. We started talking about Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the like. We ended up having a conversation that luckily was recorded where we talked macro, crypto, the dollar, uh, debt cycles. And we talk about everything. So I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Nicoletis. Michael, great to have you here at the Digital Asset Summit. Great to be here. It's fantastic. Great, great, great. Uh, you've done a fantastic job downstairs. It's amazing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, what would you say has been your favorite talk so far? Well, my favorite talk right now was uh, Fidelity International, where they laid out what has been going on with the custody and how do they see the CDBC, uh, central bank, CBDC, <laughs> evolving and I thought it was really really interesting because it, it, it's it's a framework where you see the old macro world coming into the crypto space and how these two worlds are going to be bridged and it's really really fascinating coming from a macro world which I've been I've spent so much time in there and in emerging markets I can see where the value in crypto is and I think as the years come by and go by you, you, you'll see it more and more and more people will understand what their value is so I think we're, we're, we're transitioning from one world to another, similar like the internet in the 90s, where in the, middle, where in the beginning most people thought that, okay, there's going to be the internet, but okay, but we're not going to leave. We're, we're not, not a lot of things are going to change. And after like 30 years, you can see that <laughs> things have changed a lot. So I think crypto is doing this at the, at the, at the super speed of what the internet did. If I'm not mistaken, it's growing at double the rate of what the internet was growing at the late 90s. So. Yeah, I've, I've had a speaker here call it the crypto seeing epoch. Uh, Michael, so I just want to set the stage a little bit for people watching this. You've been in the macro world for a long time, uh, but you're being drawn to crypto. You have been an institutional investor. The dominant theme at the talk at the uh, uh, Fidelity International was the uh, rapidly rising adoption of digital assets by institutional investors. What do you think it is about digital assets that is drawing institutional investors in? And let's let's keep it to the the macro lens. Why are why are macro investors more inclined to, to sort of see digital assets and see the value there than let's say like a value investor? Well, let me put it this way. First of all, it's growing at such a speed which you cannot ignore it. There are two ways of looking at crypto. One is from a macro perspective, where you say that central banks have been expanding their balance sheets like crazy, so the value of money is being debased. So you need scarce assets to put in your portfolio in order to, to, to keep your purchasing power at the same level. So traditionally, that would be gold, that would be silver, that would be commodities. We've seen that since uh, 2011. We see that crypto has been, you know, Bitcoin in the beginning. Now there are more uh, cryptos in that space. We've seen them being added in that, in that sense of investing. So people are looking at scarce assets. They see that they could be a store of value. I don't think all cryptos are the same. So I would say that Bitcoin is most close to gold. The rest of the crypto space, from my understanding at least, because I'm new to the scene, I've only been one and a half years learning about it. So from that space, these have a utility. So you're investing their utility and in their scarcity. So it's, it's a bit different. But I think as an institutional investor, A, if you put 
if you look at the 60-40 traditional portfolio and you add a 1 or 2% of Bitcoin in that portfolio, you'll see that the returns increase dramatically and the risk-adjusted returns are really, really good. So from that point of view, just looking at the math, you say this makes sense. Now, if you look at it from a technological point of view, it's such an innovation which you need to look at it. You can't, uh, you can't ignore it. So looking at it from both angles, I think it makes great sense for institutional investors to come in. Michael, can, uh, the 60-40 portfolio is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. Stocks have a high rate of return, bonds have a slightly lower rate of return, but there's also a negative correlation there. So when your stocks crash, uh, your bonds, bond yields will crash as well, meaning the price of bonds uh, goes up. So you have a sort of a natural hedge, a, a positive carry put, if you will. And of course, back in the day, bond yields were as high as 10, 15, even 20%. Uh, now they're pretty close to zero and in some cases beneath that. So just can you explain the challenges that institutional investors face, maybe both pension investors as well as you know, opportunistic macro hedge fund managers like yourself? Well, in a deflationary world, when you had a 60-40 portfolio, it did well because as deflation, well, let's put deflation, let's say inflation prices did not rise, bonds did well and equities did well. So it was uh, really good. Now that we're transitioning, first of all, to a more inflationary, although I'm not really sure we're still in inflation. It could be transitory. I'll come back to that later. But if it's an inflationary, then the 60-40 portfolio will not do very well in that environment. Now, adding scarce assets, and you could also argue that by adding gold, although gold has not done that well. It, it's done well, but it hasn't done anything spectacular. Uh, you, you, you improve the whole uh, portfolio in terms of performance and in terms of risk. Uh, so. The, the thing here is that you, you add something new to a traditional way of thinking, and I think this adds a lot of value to it. And you'll see more and more people looking at it this way, I think. Michael, earlier you said that if investors had only put a 1%, 2% allocation to Bitcoin, they would have had very good returns. Uh, but a lot of that has historically come from the capital appreciation, that if anyone looks at a Bitcoin chart in the past five years, they can uh, make sense of that why that is the case. Uh, and historically, the argument against uh, crypto is that it doesn't generate yield. It's kind of like a digital pet rock, if you will. It's not like a bond that has a yield. It's not like a stock that has a dividend yield, a free cash flow yield. Uh, you know, increasingly, Michael, we're seeing that that's not the case as Bitcoin actually can generate yield. Stable coins can generate quite a high yield, 10, 12, 14%. Uh, Bitcoin slightly a lower yield, and it's sort of because you can uh, lend to other people who want to go long Bitcoin. Um, have you explored that sort of decentralized finance or the, the, the lending uh, aspect of of uh, crypto? Well, let me put something. I wouldn't put stable coins and Bitcoin the same uh, uh, bucket. It's uh, it's quite a different thing. Now, in the argument that Bitcoin doesn't earn uh, any yield, I will say that gold doesn't earn any yield as well. But both of them are a, are a constant in terms versus fiat money. So you know how much supply of Bitcoin you're going to have, and you can pretty much estimate how much gold you have. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's a good proxy. So the, the, the argument here is you can see gold and you can touch gold, but you cannot transfer $10 million of gold going from one place to another. But you can transfer $10 million of Bitcoin, but you cannot see it. So you can see one, you cannot carry the other. So <laughs> it, it's pretty interesting how you look at it. Now, earning yield also, it's one of these technological transformations which make a great, uh, give a lot of value. And the way I see this is in, 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 the, in the late 90s when the internet came up and then you had voice over IP. Uh, for someone to call the US to Europe, they would pay like five, six dollars a minute. 
So suddenly the internet came up, voice over IP came up, and suddenly phone calls became, uh, the cost came, it was just your internet connection for your call. So I think that cryptos are doing the same thing and DeFi is doing the same thing to financial transactions. So you're, 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 you're speeding up the transaction, the, the much, you're doing much faster transactions and at a much lower cost. So this, I don't think that the financial system is gonna change utterly, but it's gonna absorb this type of technology either by acquisition or by uh, uh, you know developing technologies within and this thing is going to go forward so I don't think that the banks as is are going to you know vanish but they'll have to transform one more thing is that in the past you used to you know you used to evaluate banks by their uh, by their interest rate so it was not the same interest rate if you paid, if you went to Bank of America and if you went to a Greek bank, for example, the interest rate for euro or for dollar was not the same because there was a risk of your counterparty, which was the bank could default, let's say, theoretically speaking. So now, with interest rates going to zero, there's no such mechanism. You cannot evaluate risk from an interest rate perspective. But what you can do now, we see that happening in cryptos. So if you see the cryptos, they have different interest rates. So putting money into different ones actually gives you a measure of risk of what you're doing to each other. It's not the same thing as depositing money, let's say, in Bitcoin and getting an interest, I don't know, which is 1.5%, 2%, and going to, let's say, Algorand, which is 10%. So I think what we used to see in the traditional banking, we see it now in the crypto world evolving. So I think this is really, really spectacular. Yes, and with USDC and the other stable coins, uh, you're getting the higher rate. Uh, there are risks if it's, it's not fully collateralized and the like, but then there's also the lack of reward because the upside for a stable coin in terms of capital appreciation is, is essentially nothing. Like, you know, a, a USDC is likely not going to go for $2 anytime soon, but you get to generate these phenomenal 10, 12, 14, 15% yields. Um, you know, as an institutional investor, do you think that that solves a lot of pension problems? And you know, has it surprised you that more pensions are allocating towards Bitcoin than they are towards stablecoins? Because stablecoin seems like a uh, a more fuller replacement for the old bonds. Okay, that's a great way to see it. But why do different stablecoins have different interest rates? Obviously, there's a different counterparty risk. So I think that one of the problems for cryptos are actually the stable coins. In what sense? I think that when you get the central bank digital coins, I don't think that the stable coins will, will, will continue to exist. I think they will cease to exist because you'll be able to transfer your money to a crypto wallet or to a crypto investment via the CBDC. So I think this will mitigate a lot of the risk that is currently in place. I, I, I'm not really comfortable with stable coins per se mm. because I you know, you, you've seen what's written, and it's very yes. hard to, to, to understand their balance sheets and if they're legitimate or not. So I, I use them as a tool to trade the cryptos, but I don't use them as a tool to keep my money in. So I don't feel that comfortable at this stage, at least. So I think that if I, if, if I were running money for others, CBDC would solve that problem. So I think CBDC, once the CBDC is in place, although a lot of people are afraid of it, I think it will give a huge boost to the ecosystem because a lot of institutionals will feel more comfortable coming in. So this is the way I see it. Mm. Yeah, Michael, my uh, understanding of CBDCs, central bank digital currencies, really is at its beginning. So could you sort of uh, very uh, low level, could you explain what are CBDCs 
and also why they're a threat to stable coins. If stable coins are earning a high yield, uh, do you think CBDCs could disintermediate them with still uh, yielding zero, or will CBTCs have to give a much more ample rate of interest than well, that? Well, first of all, you just need one of the stable coins to appear to be a fraud. If one appears to be a fraud, I think all of them will have a problem. Uh, they'll have a credibility risk, whatever that is. I think that if you're an institutional investor running money for others, now I'm not talking about if you're an individual, yeah. okay, because obviously if you have your money in dollars in a bank, you get zero. If you get them in, uh, I don't know, in a, in, in a stable coin, you might be getting six, seven percent, which you, you could get numbers like that. Yeah, so yeah. Th this difference, there is a risk to it. There's no, there, there wouldn't be a seven, six, seven percent if there wasn't a risk for it. So you, you need to, to understand what the risk is when you're investing in these things. So my view is that the CDBTC is a, a central bank digital currency, which means that eventually at some point, because we see all central banks talking about it, so I think it's a matter of time before it happens, you'll see the US dollar or the euro issuing a digital euro or a digital dollar. That has some benefits and has some caveats as well, so it's, it's not a clear path to what's going to happen in terms of your freedom of doing things because the central bank will be aware of all your transactions, I guess, yeah. if I understand correctly. But that means that if you want to buy a digital asset, you can convert it via the central bank digital currency instead ah. of doing it through a stable coin. So let's say that I have my money, let's say, in a UK bank and I want to buy Bitcoin. Now I need to buy a stable coin and then buy my Bitcoin. Now I could do it through the CBDC, which is which would be much faster, and it would be transparent. Because let me put it another way: right now, in order to declare your taxes in cryptos, it's a bit of a mess. It's not an easy thing. So, <laughs> where did you buy it? When did you buy it? How did you buy it? How did you did you go back and forth? Now, if you have one vehicle in, or one pathway to get there, so you're getting through the CBDC and you're getting out through the CBDC. It's an input-output, then you can know what the difference is. So if if you're willing, you want to tax, you get taxed. It's much easier. So you know, I understand that a lot of people don't like this discussion, yeah. but I, I think regulation brings legitimacy, and as legitimacy bring comes in, because the regulation is not only bad. Okay, we're we're talking about regulation because we're, we're thinking of over regulation, but like every every new technology and everything new, there is fraud and there are things that people don't like. So. For someone who wants to do his business legitimately and wants to, to take advantage of this, if you don't have a clear pathway, it's tricky. But now, if as these things evolve, I think it's going to make it clear, and a lot of a lot of more money will come in because of that. Mm. Uh, Michael, a lot of people at this conference um, have been talking about regulation, but you know, they have very high-powered jobs at very important crypto firms, so there's you know some some limitations on what they can say. But what's great about having you here is you're sort of you're fishing your own line. You're an investor. You're, you're you know, putting your uh, your heart on your sleeve. Uh, what do you think about regulation? Just let's paint a picture of, of the map: um, Asia, Europe, the United States. Uh, how are you thinking about regulation? And can you just elaborate a little bit more on why you think, broad strokes, it's a good thing for the space? Well, first of all, you don't regulate something you're planning to ban. So by having a discussion about regulating something, you're not thinking of banning it. So. The risk of, let's say, this thing, this ecosystem going back to zero, uh, you know, reduces dramatically. So this is a really, really important thing. This is what I think most people fail to understand. So yes, if you're thinking of overregulation, you're thinking of, you know, things are going to get hard again, and you won't be able to do a lot of things. 
but if you're thinking of regulation as a means to, 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 you know, to put down a playing field and to see how people can operate on that system, I think it's very good. So, and once you do that and everyone knows what the rules are exactly, because once you put on legislation and regulation, you know what the rules are. It's not A or B or C. Right now, depending on where you are, it's not exactly the same thing. It's never a clear cut. You're not sure, no one is sure. And this ambiguity makes institutional investors more, they make it, it may make it harder for them to invest because although they have their clients saying, come on, buy me some, buy me some, on the other side, they don't know how to, to operate in that framework. Yeah, and if I buy it and if I do it the wrong way and if it's, if it's not what the regulator will allow me to do, will I be fined? So this, this, this gray area doesn't help anyone, doesn't help the investors who want to come in through their banks, does not let the banks you know, be part of the system because right now they don't know in which way to be. They, they're, obviously, they're exploring it, but there's no clear framework. So I think as clarity comes, I would say regulation would bring clarity and clarity would bring growth to the system. Mm. Uh, Michael, I've got another question for you, which is how are you making sense of this epic bull run? Uh, you know, Bitcoin reached all-time highs earlier this year. We had a pretty sharp plummet from there, but we've based and actually reached new all-time highs and other digital assets, Ethereum, Cardano, and the like, have, have followed suit. Uh, you know, how long are you, are, are you still bullish? How long are you still bullish for? Do you believe in the cyclical nature of, of crypto cycles, or do you think we're, we're past that? Well, uh, let me say that Bitcoin, I think every year has a big crash. So I think it's part of the way it works. You know, you cannot have 200% uh, compounded yearly growth without excessive volatility but the excessive volatility justify, is justified by the returns you get. So if, if you put it in a risk-adjusted uh, uh, model, you'll see that it's, it, it might be very volatile, but it's not very volatile compared to the returns that it brings back. Mm -hmm. Well, it feels to me that right now, central banks are backed in a corner. They will try to, to, to raise interest rates, but I'm afraid that at some point they'll be forced to take them back down because we already we see uh, some retail sales rolling over. We see uh, Europe not doing that well, China not doing that well. Only U.S. is doing pretty well right now. Uh, but if, if the economy rolls over, then I think central banks will go back to what they were doing. So the, it's, like, it's like a drug. The, the central bank need to, get, to take more drugs and more drugs to, you know, to keep the, th the same thing going. They need to print, 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 print. The balance sheets have gone through the roof. And what are you doing? You're needing more and more debt to sustain the same rate of growth, which at some point will reach a wall. I don't know what that will be. I guess we should be looking at Japan, where the Bank of Japan has most of the bonds out that have been issued. At some point, I guess, the finance minister will get together with the central banker and say, the right pocket goes to the left pocket. <laughs> Let's figure out some way of you know uh, dealing with it. I don't know, maybe they'll swap it to a 100-year perpetual bond and say this is it. At that point, the money that was issued, the, the bonds that were issued to, 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 for credit does not need to be returned. So that money, whenever you borrow money, you know that you have to give it back at some point. You have it on the back of your head. Now imagine if I come one day and you owe $100,000 and I tell you, yeah, you'll pay it in 100 years. So suddenly you don't have to pay it. Yeah. So your psychology and the way you invest will change dramatically at that point. So I think that there will be a point, and I think probably Japan, because ahead of everyone, 
will say this and say, okay, we swap what we own between us for 100 years and suddenly the debt will fall or, you know, the, the, the imminent debt will fall dramatically. And I think that's when we're going to see hyperinflation because all the money that was put into place does not have to be returned. Now, in the back of your head, you think that at some point you'll have to get it, give it back. It's not the same thing. So I think going forward, there are going to be more money printing or let's say money issued or bonds issued, whatever way you want to put it. And I think scare, scarce assets, which, is, which includes Bitcoin, it includes gold, it includes many more things. Well, that's why you see art going up. I think you, you'll see scarce assets doing well and outperforming. That, that's the things, uh, that's the way I see it. Now, if, if inflation comes and inflation persists, I think you're gonna get a, a growth scare for sure. But again, scarce assets will be, you know, after a correction, they will be the go-to investment because people will say, we have inflation, bank gives me 1% when I have inflation of 6%, what do I do? I need to have an asset which will give me that value while I'm losing it by doing nothing. So scarce assets right now are in a sweet spot, I would say. You need to own them, you'll get a lot of volatility, but I think in a more medium to long-term horizon, you'll do pretty well. Central banks worldwide, Michael, particularly the Fed, face the twin threats of slowing growth, as you mentioned, and also not rising inflation, but persistent inflation, inflation that refuses to, to budge down, down yeah. lower. So those, those are the two threats, and you know, what they can do is keep on using the drug, as you say, of, of quantitative easing. Do you think that quantitative easing is inflationary? I always, first principles to me, always said it was, but then you hear people talking about, oh, the Lacey Hunt argument, actually it's deflationary, but then you think, wait, if, if they're actually buying, if the Fed is buying bonds and the Treasury is issuing bonds at the same time, that literally is money printing. So can you just speak on how you see this whole QE situation? Playing? Well, well, the thing is here, well, uh, it, it's clear that it's been deflationary. Okay, we've been doing this for 10 years. If it was inflation, you would have seen it earlier. But the thing is here, that you ha you, you, you need, it's, not a st it's not by itself inflationary or deflationary. You have to put it in the context of the, of the economy. Now, if you have so much debt, and the debt is rising at such a speed, the debt is very, very deflationary. So you have two opposing forces here. And the, 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 the large amounts of debt are having a bigger impact than the money printing. So I think that's what people should see. And obviously, the way that the, way that the spending has come, and has come through the monetary venue and not for, through the fiscal venue, it has gone to assets and has gone to, let's say, stock markets and bonds and everything. So. If, if, if you are able to access the markets and have investments, probably these are your savings. And those savings, usually, you don't tend to spend them. You tend to keep them, and you tend, especially if you're high net worth. But if you're an everyday person, you need money to live and to buy another house or to buy another car. You know, you have kids, you have things to spend. So the difference to the lower income people is huge. So I think the way we, we saw this, the, the reason we see some form of inflation here right now, it's A, because we did some, there was some form of fiscal. A lot of paychecks went to everyone, which was spent. If you, know, if you have a million dollars and give another $20,000, you won't spend them, it won't make a difference. You're going to go to the savings account. But right. if you have $5,000 and I give you another $5,000, it makes the whole difference to your life, yes. your daily life. So this is what we saw. And then again, we had the, the perfect combo where we had the supply shock, 
because everyone shut down because of COVID and the economy opened up faster, you could not uh, supply goods. So you had people with paychecks and you had no goods coming or less goods coming than the demand was. So I think these two together created this shock we were seeing this year in terms of inflation. Uh, we need to see what's going to happen next year because if the supply adjusts to the demand and we have some form of price uh, increase, which we see right now, you'll see demand going lower, supply going higher, and you'll see prices smoothing out. So I'm not that sure that inflation is here to stay. We'll need more data for that. But I think the more money you go through fiscal, you'll get more inflation. The more money you give through monetary, you won't see any inflation there. Do you think the infrastructure bill that was uh, passed recently uh, in the United States, do you think that will prove to be inflationary? Or do you think that's sort of already priced into the inflation market, the bond market, as well as the fact that it's going to be spent over 10 years? So it's not like... Well, one know. trillion over 10 years is like 100 billion a year. So yeah. it's not that big. Yeah, in, yeah. In, 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 in principle, it would be inflationary. Yeah, yeah. Now, if it's brought forward, maybe it could increase inflationary pressures. But again, we need to see how the whole thing evolves. Because if you see now, China is also rolling over, so you might see commodities rolling over. And if you see commodities rolling over, then you know input prices will and CPI will drop or, or will not increase at the same rate as it did. So all this will, will help uh, inflation fears get uh, mitigated. So again, I'm not really convinced. It's one of the few times where I think the central bank might be right saying that it's transitory. Maybe it's not transitory for three months as they expected. It could be transitory for six or eight months. Uh, but this is something important. The, the, if, if, we, if we see wage increases materialize, which we've seen a few, and if we see this getting a bit broader, that could you know, help inflation keep uh, at higher levels. But again, if we see demand rolling over and supply increasing, I, I'm not sure that the wage increases will increase. I think at some point they will pause. Mm. Yeah, I saw a fascinating statistic from um, a macro analyst, Vincent Deloard, who noted that uh, uh, payroll withholdings are up 18% year over year, meaning you know, the money people are, are uh, withholding from, from, for tax are very, very high. Okay. Well, if you pay taxes, this is good for the, for the government. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> again, it, it, it is uh, right now the economy in the U.S. is doing very well compared to where it was at least. So I think you, you will see things continuing this way in the U.S. I don't know how bad China and Europe will weigh because I think China is not in a really good situation. They tried to, 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 stop the, to, to stop the real estate bubble from going through the roof and they've created a small mess there. So we'll see how this plays out. And Europe has quite a few issues right now. Germany doesn't have a chancellor. Uh, France has elections in five months. You have an, a huge energy crisis in Europe uh, going on, and you have also inflationary pressures going through the roof in, in Europe because of the, the energy crisis. So Europe and Asia, China, I'm not really hot about it. U.S. is doing a pretty much better job. And you see that also in the dollar, which the dollar has been going higher. And what is interesting, you've seen the dollar go higher, but gold not going down, which traditionally go on the opposite Way. And Wait, sorry, say that again. Usually, dollar and the gold go the opposite yes. way. So you've seen the dollar go up and gold go up. So we haven't seen them for, for a long time. And now you see also cryptos going up. Okay, today they're down, but if you look at the trend, they're up, upward sloping. So 
you see the dollar, which is a funding currency for the world, actually. 87% of global transactions are done in dollar. And the striking number is that in the last two years, it's gone up 2%. From 85, went to 87. So a lot of people are saying the dollar is dying. But actually, the dollar dollar's utility is increasing. So the dollar is a funding currency for the rest of the world. When it increases, it creates a pressure to emerging markets. It creates pressure to funding outside the US. So we could see there some issues in terms of growth because of, of, the, of, the, of the strength of the dollar. Now, if the dollar strengthens slowly and gradually, it will be much better. If, if we see a sudden move, I think this will have a bigger impact. Michael, we did an uh, interview earlier this year, uh, Real Vision. Uh, it was at the doldrums of the dollar. Everyone was calling for, uh, it was at 89, 88 on the US dollar index. Everyone's, almost every bank was convinced that it was going to head lower. You came on with a contrary view that you thought the dollar was headed uh, higher. Can you explain why you thought that was the case? And then looking back, you know, why was the call that you made uh, right? Did it happen for the reasons that you thought or other reasons? Well, well look, the, everyone who looks at the dollar usually tends to focus on the U.S. And, and, and I, I, I also like to look outside the U.S. So, you know, it doesn't mean that the dollar is appreciating. Maybe everyone else is depreciating. Yes. So the biggest cross is the dollar euro. So let's start from the easy one, which in the biggest weight is the euro. Euro is facing structural issues, is facing growth issues, is facing political issues. So it was very hard for me to, to, to see how 19 countries without, without a clear leader, because now Chancellor Merkel is leaving, and Macron is trying to become the leader of Europe, but we'll see because there are elections in five months what will happen there. And with negative interest rates. So you have negative interest in the US, you don't have a negative interest. In the euro, you have negative interest. I could not see why one would put their savings into euro and not into dollars. Okay, I understand the dual, dual deficits for the dollar. I understand the fiscal situation for the dollar. But Europe isn't any better in that. And it also has the, the, the political problems which it has. And uh, there's a famous quote by Henry Kissinger, which said, when I call Europe, who do I call? <laughs> and so uh, it, uh, this, this comes back in. Who do you call when you call Europe? Who, who is the leader? You call the commission, you call Merkel who's leaving. So these things matter when you want to have leadership and you want things to move forward. I think Europe has to solve a lot of internal issues. And until it does, I think it will always be weaker than the US because in size, they're pretty close. It's not like the economies are not uh, close to each other. But I think the dollar will continue to strengthen, but obviously no one wants it to strengthen. This is very important. Yes. The more it strengthens, the bigger the problems for the world. So I think there'll be some forms of trying to, to, to make it go lower, but I think the, the, the powers are for it to go stronger, not. Uh, lower, so they'll they'll try. I think central bank will do their best to 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 keep it from rising. Obviously, the best is to keep it in a range, yeah. say ninety to ninety-seven, whatever. That doesn't make a big difference. But if it starts getting out of, goes through the XY goes through hundred, I think we're going to see pressures which are not really good for growth, and this will be a problem. So my view was, going back to your question, that. I was looking at the dollar from the euro perspective or from the, the external fact. And I was seeing that a lot of people are borrowing in dollars. And there's also the euro dollar market, which is much bigger than the dollar. So there are a lot of more dollars lent, which we do not register. And this, in my mind, is a 
it is a problem which we will see it at some point. So I'm on the dollar bullish camp uh, in that sense, and it's a relative uh, trade. And wh why do I say relative? Because if, if you ask me, theoretically, I wouldn't want to have any currency. I would prefer have gold, Bitcoin, or whatever scarce assets, and have my money, which I spend in, 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 in a fiat currency, which I, I live in. Yeah, yeah. But if I had to keep money in a fiat currency, I would prefer to keep it in dollars, because I think it's, it's a currency which right now feels safer to me in terms of risk reward. So that's the way I see it. Yeah, just to explain for the people watching this, your, your high level analysis. So when you're talking about the dollar euro or the uh, euro dollar, sometimes that, that's the cross between how many dollars in a euro. Correct. And typically that's like $1.18, or $1.20. I don't know exactly where it is. No, now. it's one thirteen fifteen. One thirteen fifteen. Thank you. Thank you. That's different than the euro dollar market, which refers to the uh, market for dollars uh, outside the United States. And it's that's it, not just in Europe, but around the, the world. No, apologies. Let me explain that. You're, you're, you're right. The euro dollar cross is the euro dollar we all know. Mm -hmm. The euro dollar market is the dollars issued outside the US, which is I don't know why it's called like this. I, there's some, there must be some reason. I have no idea. But it has nothing to do with the cross, and you, you, yeah. you correctly pointed it out. So I'm talking about the dollars which banks can issue outside the U.S. when they lend dollars yeah. versus their balance sheet. So this is a, a number which a lot of people have tried to estimate. It's very hard. No one really knows what the size is. But people who are really good at this and have done great analysis uh, believe that it's equal or bigger than the actual uh, dollar market. Mm. Uh, yeah, Michael, I'm glad that you talked about how you're long the dollar, but it's you're short the euro, and that's what I always love. You know, when someone says I'm long the dollar, it doesn't mean that they just like have a dollar bill in their pocket. It means that they're borrowing another currency, selling it, and then buying dollars because you really have to leverage that trade. Yeah, okay. currencies if, don't if you look it from a trading point, yes. Yeah. If you're keeping it from a deposit point where you keep your money, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It depends how you see it. Right. Right. But so, well, and I think emerging markets will face a bigger problem. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Emerging markets will face a bigger problem than the euro, the, the, the euro, because. The euro has swap lines, and it's important to see. I think there are seven or eight countries which have swap lines with the Fed, which means they can issue dollars when there's a liquidity problem. But emerging markets do not have swap lines uh, usually. For example, let's say see Turkey. Turkey right now today. Uh, yeah, just okay, Turkey yeah. today is the currency is uh, around I think ten twenty versus the dollar. It's collapsing at the speed of. Uh, it has devalued like 50% in the last two years. Yeah. So it used to be four lira for every dollar. Now it's 10 lira for every dollar. Well, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason that this is happening is A, because they do not have enough dollars. They need dollars to, to buy Turkish lira. So they're spending their dollars to buy Turkish lira to keep the currency from falling. They have negative real rates, really high. So their deposit is lower than the inflation rate. So if you have money in the bank, you're getting an interest rate of, let's say, 17%, but the inflation is 21%. So you're losing money, actually. So this creates pressure. This is an example of one emerging market having issues. So this is a problem which when emerging markets, because emerging markets tend to borrow in foreign currency because their local currency interest rates are very high. So a corporate in Turkey, I'm just you know having an example here, does not want to borrow at 20%. They want to borrow at 5%. So they try to go to the euro, to the dollar, and they try to issue bonds. But the, 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 you have an FX risk there. So that's the problem. So the, the stronger the currency, the dollar goes, the lower the 
Turkish or whatever emerging market goes, so your, your cost of repayment increases. So your interest rate might be low, but the absolute amount, if you had borrowed in dollars and you were a Turkish corporate, you owe 50% more in just two years. So these things are really important uh, when it comes to emerging markets. So, you know, developed markets tend to have the issues which we see, but they're not so profound. But emerging markets have much bigger issues than that, and you see them. And that's why when the dollar rallies really fast and not gradually, you tend to see an emerging market blow up. Mm. I, I believe it's called original sin when an emerging market has a lot of debt denominated in dollars and it depreci their currency depreciates against the dollar. So what they owe is more valuable and what they have is less valuable. So you get this really uh, negative feedback loop. Michael, I want to ask you about uh, China, which is currently having a, a huge uh, slowdown in economic growth. Uh, a lot of people are, are uh, at least were, preparing for a depreciation in the yuan, which they have been, or the Hong Kong dollar, which they have been you know, bracing for, for for many years. Uh, of course, China, while it is in the emerging market basket, it really is, in some ways, you know, more of a developed market yeah. economy. Um, to what degree do you think the slowdown in the in China is a threat to either the Hong Kong dollar or the, the yuan? Well, China does not want it to devalue because it imports a lot of commodities and it, used, and it needs to pay for them. So devaluing the, the currencies right now not not something they want they, they wanted to do. And if also the currency devalues, then they're going to import inflation, which is going to bring more problems to them. China has capital controls. So people, I think, cannot take out more than $50,000 a year, $50,000 worth, worth of one outside China per year. So the money in China can't leave. So this is important because when they do whatever fiscal or whatever uh, monetary uh, expansion, the, it's like a balloon with air. The balloon grows, 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 but the air can't leave. So right now, if you look at the banking system in China, I think it's like uh, 400 and something percent of GDP. And if you look at Hong Kong, it's like 900 of GDP. Well, the, U, the US in 2000, uh, and eight was around 200. So, and we had the Lehman crisis and the real estate crisis. Uh, Iceland was, I think, around 800% when the whole crisis started from Iceland. So you see that the numbers internally, the leverage which is being used, is really, really high. You need that more than 80. Eight, you need more. You need eight units of debt to create one unit of GDP. This has gone from one to eight in the last. 10 years, which means that you need more and more debt to create the same level of GDP. All that money went to real estate mostly because they tried to, 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 to shift from an investment economy to a consumption, consumer economy. And consumption in China is around 30, 39%, 38%, 39%, when in the US is around 70 But this transition from investment to consumption has not occurred at the pace they would want. So investment is a big chunk of their economy. And they've been building re real estate, and they've been building ghost cities, as you probably know. And all this, uh, those, those apartments, those houses, those buildings need to be resold and resold. It's like uh, a mechanism. Suddenly, there was an abrupt stop, as you know, and there was the Evergrande story. And we've seen a lot of developers defaulting. And that has caused a very big internal uh, economic shock, obviously. Things have not gone really, really bad, but because China is trying to, to mitigate it. But you see the first cracks in the economy. And you cannot have 
closed capital account and a free market economy and everything working at the same time. At some point, these things need to adjust. So I, I, we see the first cracks. I think that China tried it to, to stop the, the real estate bubble by putting some uh, rules. I think it will have to soften those rules to, you know, to make real estate pick up again and you know, alleviate a bit the pressure on, uh, on the banks and on the economy. So I think we're kicking the can down the road again and hoping uh, for, you know, for, for to, to, to see it in the future, you know, roll over. One thing here is important in my view, and this is one of the things that I was looking at. China is trying to roll over her, the, the, the digital currency or the one. And why is it doing that? Because by using Alipay and WeChat and all these platforms where they accept the digital one, it, it's trying to make the one an international currency and make it increase in weight. Theoretically speaking, if the one was to become 60-50% of the world transactions, then suddenly my debt becomes your problem. So they haven't managed to do that yet. So the problem remains in China at this moment. Michael, a lot of people are talking about bubbles. Do you see any bubbles anywhere? I take it you, uh, because you're constructive on crypto, it's not there. And I also, because you like the dollar, it's not there. Uh, when you scan the macro landscape, whether it's asset class of real estate, stocks, uh, derivatives, structured products, which are you know a lot of people don't know a ton about, at very opaque, or or you can uh, do it by by country uh, or region. Uh, you know what are, what if any bubbles are you seeing? Well, I, I see a lot of bubbles. I see bubbles also in crypto. Okay, obviously there are like ten thousand coins I read. Obviously, not all ten thousand of them are legitimate technologies. Obviously, the ecosystem and the technology which it brings, there are. Quite a good, quite a few good stories, but the others are like a bubble. Like in in the dot com bubble, the bubble burst, but Amazon, Cisco, IBM did not shut down. Okay, they corrected and then they moved on. The bubbles shut down and they went bankrupt. So I guess, like every cycle and every ecosystem, at some point the crypto world will go through that as well, mm -hmm. and the legitimate technologies will keep up and the rest will shut down. So there, I think there are bubbles there. I don't think there are the bubbles in the majors. I think mostly on the minors and the ideas you, you hear every day some story about the coin going, uh, I don't know, a thousand percent for some reason. Obviously, these are not good signs for, uh, these are clear bubbles. Yeah. Now, in terms of stocks, the valuations from a historical point of view are pretty high. However, it depends if you value money or if you value stocks. And what do I mean? I mean that what's the, if, you, if you're valuing your purchasing power, maybe stocks are not that bad. So again, if, if that's the view and you don't see inflation coming, then I think stocks are a good trade. If inflation comes and persists, which means that input costs will start going up, you could see a rotation from growth stocks to value stocks, which we haven't seen for a lot of years. There have been a lot of people advocating for a few years, and you could see that happening. Uh, I think stocks are expensive, but as long as you don't see inflation persisting, then I think they will do much better. If you see inflation persisting and we see input prices going up, I think you'll see a correction in global stock prices everywhere. So in, if I see a bubble, I, I don't know if you can call it a bubble because I don't think there are a lot of things. That, obviously, like every market, there are bubbles, specific bubbles. There are stocks which you know, trade like a bubble. But as, as markets evolve, I think they're expensive, but the framework that we're 
current lean justifies. Mm. Uh, Michael, it's been great having you here. I've got two final questions for you. The first one is, outside of the world of crypto, what do you see as the greatest oppor uh, investment opportunity now? And the second one is, are your feet hurting at all? <laughs> My feet hurting a bit, but anyway, uh, I think the best value trade right now, and it's really fun, is gold miners and precious metals miners. And the reason is gold has gone up, but they've lagged a lot. And the, the, the numbers, the valuations are ridiculously cheap. So I think, in my view, the biggest you know, upside to downside risk is there right now. Mm, wonderful. Well, uh, Michael, it's been fantastic having you here. Uh, Great thank to you talk so to much. You. Where can people find you on Twitter? Great to talk to you again. My Twitter handle is mnicoletos, uh, just mnicoletos. You'll, you'll, you'll see. There we go. Well, Michael, thank you so I mean, much. Nice, nice being here. Thank yeah. you for having me. Of course, anytime. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael Nicoletos. That was filmed at the BlockWorks Digital Asset Summit, where I was interviewing institutional investors in crypto, industry leaders in crypto, basically everything crypto. Uh, so I think I did 13 of those interviews. Those should be coming out on the BlockWorks YouTube channel in the coming week. So stay tuned for that. Also, stay tuned for the next episode of Forward Guidance on Tuesday, where I will be speaking with... Uh, James DeVolos, who's running a fund about uh, basically how to benefit from inflation. You know, a lot of things are a hedge against inflation, but what can you do that's the next level? How can you benefit from inflation? So that is definitely something uh, to watch as, you know, we know that that is could be a potential regime shift. Uh, we could be entering a regime of secular inflation and all of the rules that did well over the past 40 years might have to go out the window. So uh, thank you again for watching and see you next week.